welcome to 9 to 5 Rider, the podcast for enthusiastic amateurs. Today's guest Josephine has lived a life of variety, experiencing equestrianism in Singapore, Paris and the UK. Currently working as an analyst in emerging markets, Josephine splits her week between the skyscrapers of Canary Wharf and long days in Hampshire with her warm blood mare Cappy, where her passion is show jumping. I can't wait to hear about her international experiences. We love your listening comments, so don't forget to screenshot us and tag us on Instagram at 9to5rider. Enjoy the show. Hi Josephine, welcome to 9to5rider. Could you tell us a bit about your normal working and riding life? Hi Ali, Um, very nice to be on your podcast. Uh, Sure. So I am based in London, usually. Um, I work in uh, the city in the financial industry. Um, And I have my horse, Cappy, who is a 12-year-old warm-blood mare. She is currently kept in Hampshire. Um, Amidst the COVID-19 issue, I've been moved to uh, Basingstoke, which is actually five miles from where I keep my horse. Um, in the disaster recovery site Um, so it's actually quite cool because now I'm closer than ever to my horse and I get to see her almost every day and um, you know there's the time management is much easier because I can just leave work early and then go and see her and obviously with the summer coming in evenings are lighter so I can leave work around seven or even eight and still get in with time to see her um, otherwise, generally, when I'm back in London, I don't see her in the week. She's on full livery. And um, I try to come on, come over on Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays, but mostly just Saturdays and Sundays. And I, I actually just spend the whole day because it's a nearly a two hour drive from London where I am to uh, the yard. I drive over in the morning, maybe around nine, and then I spend 10 hours at the yard and then I leave the day. Oh my god, that's amazing! That's a really different approach. Yeah. That's that's fab. <laughs> that's amazing. That's just so 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 much commitment. So your whole weekends, that's happy time. Exactly. Um, my husband, so I married. My husband gets my dinners, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's the only husband with a horsey a horsey wife who's experiencing that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and he tries to be supportive. He's a very non-horsey person. He's a complete city boy. He loves skyscrapers and he doesn't like um, poo. So, <laughs> so he, he tries his best to be supportive and he does come to the yard once every couple of weeks and he's promised to come to every show. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, he generally stays at home and then I'll spend the whole weekend with Cappy. So cause I'm trying to make up for the lost time in the week. Sure. So that must be a huge contrast going from, you know, the financial sector in London. Is that, am I right to assume that's Canary Wharf you're referring to, the city? And then going out and having that time in Basingstoke in a quiet yard with a horse. That's a a huge contrast. It sounds like it to me. Is that how you experience it? Yeah, it takes me away. So um, my work can be quite stressful. I do do quite long hours. So it's about seven in the morning to about seven in the evening at least and then on bad days it goes well through you know the night 
Um, so when I can get the weekends off and I can go to cafe, I can completely forget about it. Um, where there's a complete change of environment, nothing prompts me to go check my emails or mm-hmm. to, you know, make a call. So it's, it's a really good way for me to just, you know, say, okay, I'm done with work. This is my weekend. Let me relax. And it's, it's actually very relaxing because when I come home, I, I go and check my emails again. So 10 mm-hmm. hours at the yard is 10 pure hours of, you know, just, just me and my horse and, Oh, that's that's lovely. I think that's just it just shows amazing commitment. <laughs> Could you tell us more about um, Cappy in terms of what she's like, her personality, and how did you come to her? Uh, she she I got her on a whim, by the way. Um, <laughs> I I went to so the yard I'm at now, and it's a it's an old friend. I've known the yard owner for the past ten years. I used to work on his yard when he was based in France. Um, and then when he moved back to the UK, I, I think I came to see him once or twice. And then obviously my job and my personal life got in the way. So I never actually got back into the horsey world. And then um, I got more stability in my job. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I can pay a visit to them and see how it's like. And I went over to them in August of last year, I think. Yeah, August last year. And I said, oh, you know, I miss the horses so much. Maybe in one year I'll get a horse, you know, we'll take it easy. I don't want to rush into this. And then one month later, I found myself browsing through Horse Quest. <laughs> <laughs> and six weeks later, I called them up and I said, hey, I've got Cappy coming into the yard. Please make me some space. <laughs> so uh, I got Cappy between visiting the yard and telling them that I had one more year before I bought a horse. Six weeks later, I got Six weeks. Um, I found her in 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 Leicester area. So it's, it's north for me because I'm in London, but it's not really the north. <laughs> Um, so I found her in a she was in a professional show jumping yard in Leicester she's 12 years old this year so she was 11 when I got her Um, the guys selling her wanted something younger she actually had some stains on her record Um, so she started refusing she wasn't you know going up the levels like they'd expected so I think um, after trying to push her to jump the 140s and she stopped jumping they just decided to sell her so I got mm-hmm. her slightly on a discount because we knew that she was known to you know not be the most honest horse out there but when I went to visit her she was the easiest horse to do everything with so in a stable she's an angel she doesn't she doesn't move when you tack her up she doesn't flinch when you throw a rug on her she she doesn't rush to her food she doesn't kick the door she um you know she's just the she's very quiet I I can't you know you know you have that friend who's always smiling and she's part of your friend group she's never the loudest one She's kind yeah. of there, but she's always there to support you, but she never pushes her ideas onto you. That's Cappy. She's really nice. Um, and then when I when I tried her out, so I when I tried her out, I hadn't ridden in seven years. So I hadn't been in the saddle in seven years, and I went to jump some random horse that I've never ridden before. It's a warm blood, and I jumped around horses. <laughs> I was like, yes, this is the one for me. <laughs> that is, do you know what? That's so funny because... Apollo's a warm yeah. blood and I had a seven year break and I bought him from a dressage yeah. yard and they said to me before because he was quite sharp and it sounds it sounds like a similar story actually and they said to me oh when did you last yeah. ride 
And I thought if I turn around and say in Florida in November on holiday, they're not going to let me sit on him. <laughs> so I just said, oh, recently, you know, the vague old recently. It's not funny because had, I'd had a seven year break yeah. as well. So you jumped on, jumped this. How big was this course? It wasn't very big. It was like a 90 meter. Oh, that's big for me. <laughs> but I'm a dressage rider, so I would say that. <laughs> and yeah, so so I mean, when when I got before when I got to you know when I got to the yard and they were asking you know do you want to see her ridden first or do you prefer to just get on? And I said, well, she's an 11 year old. I think the the week before that I tried a six year old, and the six year old I wanted mm-hmm. to be ridden first because that's an actual young horse, and I wasn't going to put myself in that kind of position. But I was expecting an 11 year old to be you know sufficiently schooled and everything so I just told them you know that's okay I'll get on and then I got on and you know she I mean she she's still a woman she was a bit sharp and even bringing her now to my to my current yard she she is a very sensitive man we found that off we found that out um doing my bad patch with her but but she was she was just so she's challenging enough that I don't feel like I'm 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 a blob but she's yep. kind enough that I also feel that I can trust her with my silly my silliness sometimes. Oh, and what's your? You've obviously not not had her very yeah. long. What's your kind of long term aims as a combination? Well, um, initially when I got her, I, w- I just wanted to get back into show jumping and competing again. I wanted something that I could take out. She's been to a lot of international shows. She's jumped up to one thirty five or one forty, if I remember. And um, she's she's been there, done that kind of course. So I just wanted to take her out nineteen meter you know, get back into being comfortable at a show, remembering a course of 14 jumps, not, you know, <laughs> messing at it, everything up uh, each time, at least for the first year. And then when I get more confident, maybe jump the 110s or 120s, you know, something that would be easy for her, but would be more of a stretch for me because I haven't, you know, I haven't jumped that before, not in a show or not in, not in 10 years or something like that. So She's kind of just my get back into competitions. I did want to do the Southeast Asian Games, um, but that's I think that's kind of gone now with her injury, Corona, and my my um, relative inexperience. Uh, but you know, who knows? Maybe next year suddenly we'll be up and about, and you know, maybe we could fast track that. But we'll see. <laughs> You never know with horses, do you? Because things things can change so quickly. Both some other listeners have, some other guests rather have said it is a bit of a roller coaster, and I think things can turn around really quickly. So um, I hope she does overcome her injury, you know, as as quickly as she can and comes out really sound and good for whatever it is that you you I end up doing. <laughs> so you have had, I suppose. A, quite a wealth of international experience yeah. riding you're you're from Singapore and you've also shared with me that you have um ridden in France and also competed mm-hmm. in Australia could you share with myself and listeners what I guess horse riding culture and equestrianism is like in Singapore and Paris in particular and how that compares to the UK and just any I guess any reflections you have to offer about all that amazing experience that you've you've got riding in those different places. 
Um, so I started writing in Singapore. I grew up when I was from, let's say, zero to 14 in Singapore. So um, I started writing when I was six um, in the Singaporean equestrian scene. And at the time, it was definitely not a common sport, especially not in Asia. Um, very few locals did it. It was more a foreigner sport. So the couple of clubs that we had where you could learn to ride and everything were mostly dominated by um, Caucasians who came over to Singapore for work. Mm -hmm. um, and all of my friends from that horsey life, so, I mean, my horsey friend group, most of them are Caucasian. Um, but that's, that has definitely changed now. Um, as, as I continued, you know, uh, over the years, I spent maybe, I'd say I'd spent, yeah, about seven years riding in Singapore. And each year, more and more local riders, you know, start, started it, taking it up. We do have a couple of um, people representing Singapore and they're definitely very local. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but it was definitely more of an expat sport and not so much, you know, there were maybe one or two locals who, who were into it um, at the time. Now it seems like Asia's picked up quite a bit. So you see riders coming from China, Taiwan. I think Japan's always been in it. You know, you've got Taiwan. But, but um, yep. when, when we look at like more the Chinese um, in Southeast Asia, it wasn't really that big of a sport. Now it's coming into its own, I think, especially in Singapore with um, a lot of funding pushed into equestrian. Um, and we do have... Um, quite a good team of local riders now so that's not something I'm so worried about now versus when I when I started um, um, can I ask what sort of horses though I mean I've seen we have a native breeds yeah, here yeah. in the UK that many people ride and and obviously a, a long history of racing and thoroughbred mm. breeding draft horses mm. If if I was going to an equestrian centre in Singapore, what what would the horses be be like? I suppose would they be similar to to the UK horse scene, or are there particular more Asian breeds that come in? What would I so see definitely no Asian breeds. We, I don't think there are any native Asian breeds that would you know that are bred for the riding. If anything, they're horses that are living in the jungles mm -hmm. that we don't know about. But um, <laughs> no, we so a lot of the riding school horses are X race horses. So they come over from either Australia or Malaysia, um, which have very big horse racing scenes, and um, and then they're retrained and then they're put in the riding school. Most of them are, you know, quite old. Um, I know the pony that I I knew when I was a child. When I went back, um, when I was you know maybe like three years ago, he was still there. He was like thirty five, and he was still being used in the riding school. Um, some people might think that's not the best idea. I mean, they definitely tailored his um, riders to his age. So I don't think it's a bad thing. And obviously it would be better for him to be out and about rather than stuck in a box. So um, also given there's not a lot of land in Singapore, a lot of the horses don't get to, you know, go out as much. Um, and there's no space to mm -hmm. retire them in Singapore. So if you didn't need to retire a horse, you need to <sighs> transport them internationally. It Malaysia but most people yep. retire them either in Australia or in Europe so, yeah. oh, God. Yeah, imagine, imagine you have to pay yeah. for your 35 year old whatever retire and pay like yeah. 20 grand to fly to Europe <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just those things that we take take for granted in yeah. different cultures doesn't it because 
you think here when people are retiring horses they're thinking oh can I have it somewhere where it's yeah. within an hour's drive and you know that there's there's a you know there's land available and it's more about finding people that you trust and you're comfortable with rather than the fundamentals of yeah. where to put the horse God, that's that's fascinating um, but- but over the years, so when I started, the riding school was mostly ex-race horses or, you know, horses that were donated from other riding schools um, in the region. Um, but then every so often uh, you'd have someone import a horse and then the, when the horse retires, it actually retires to the riding school where it all competes at the same level. Uh... It just, it just you know, plods around and teaches little kids. Um, and every private owner that I've known um, has imported their own horse because you I mean unless you want to buy an x-race horse most of the time you'd have to import um, people import from both Australia and Europe uh, I think a lot of us mm-hmm. have I say us um, but a lot of them imported from Germany and Australia most of the time and is that generally I'm, I'm making an assumption here but do you buy unseen in that case or do people well, fly out to have like a horse shopping weekend and then um, send the horse. So back. I'm not sure if you've watched the movie Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> I haven't, no, but I will put it on my list <laughs> for lockdown watching. Because I've heard, yeah, I've heard so of it. There I have is heard of a it. lot of money coming into Asia at the moment, and it's been, you know, it's been building up for quite a while. So more and more often, people do fly, and then they try the horses, and then they fly the horses back. Um, I never owned a horse in Singapore, so I can't attest to how much that cost or how that was, you know, how that was coordinated. Um, but a lot of my friends, they did, you know, fly fly to wherever they were trying them out and then brought them back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. That's, that's fascinating. So shall we, shall oh, yeah. we move to Paris and you can tell us a bit yeah. about that? <laughs> um, so I moved to Paris when I was 14. Um, I spent a year without horses, uh, just going to school, learning French. Um, I didn't speak French before, and then I, I spent a, about a year you know, learning French. And then I got back into horses when um, I decided to leave school. So I, I dropped out of um, middle school. Um, and I went to the south of France. No, I went to Normandy to buy a horse. Um, given my budget, uh, which wasn't very big at the time, I got whatever I could, which was a five-year-old just broken um 15 to one blood cross um and then I brought her up to stay with me in Paris for a couple of years and then I brought her down to where I met my current yard owner in the southwest of France um I'd say the Paris scene is quite it's 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 special it's very different to the UK in the sense that competitions don't run in the same way at all um there's no you know british novice and discovery um it's more you have amateurs you have club riders and you have the professionals amateurs are somewhere in the middle between the leisure complete leisure riders and the professionals um club riders are mostly weekend riders and then the professionals are professionals um and with my horse, we did a few club competitions before I met my current yard owner. And then I affiliated and we did, I think, a couple of affiliated competitions before I left and got a job and went to uni and all that stuff. So um, I'd say the Paris scene, it, you have two extremes. You either do DIY or you do full livery when you go and when you own your horse. And because it's so near the city, um, generally, it's quite expensive. 
but there are a whole mm. lot of competitions super close to the city. So, I mean, Fontainebleau, where they have oh. the young horse co uh, competitions. You have Chantilly, which is um, where they host the Global Champions Tour. Um, so you have very, very nice um, venues, very close to the city. I think all of them are 20 minutes from by train or something. And in terms of those competitions, when I've been in France, I see a lot yeah. of show jumping. Um, would you say there's a it's it's balanced across disciplines? If we and I know there's multiple equestrian disciplines all around the world, but if we think compared to the UK, we've kind of got you know dressage, show jumping, and eventing would be the, yeah. the main disciplines. And I think it's, I would say it's reasonably balanced across the UK in terms of the amateur scene mm -hmm. and what people focus on. Is that similar in Paris or is there a, an emphasis on a particular I definitely discipline? think there are more show jumpers and eventers in France than there are dressage riders. Um, at all the yards that I've been in, in France, uh, I've been to, I think, four, uh, it's mostly show jumping eventing. Um, and I think even eventing would be a much bigger sport than than show jumping per se though they do have i think they any any sport which involves jumping most of the time they they're more geared towards that i think dressage is a bit is a bit left behind in this case in france um from what i've noticed and also a lot of the french horses have just been bred for jumping rather than dressage sure sure and i think in many in many respects the uk was a bit like that mm. maybe 10 years ago um but I, I think because of the Olympic success that we had um, with Charlotte Desjardins and obviously Carl Hester's just such yeah. a well-known figure, I, I think dressage yeah. got quite accelerated by that for the UK and um, UK amateurs. You've obviously, they've got access to online competitions and things like that as well, which has maybe brought, yeah. brought dressage forward. Ah, that's yeah. really interesting. So I'm going to move on to the next. Um, I could talk. I don't want to be greedy and talk to you for hours about that, Josephine, though I certainly could. Um, but I'd be really interesting if you could share the experiences that you've had since you've moved to the UK and particularly as a, an Asian rider. Um, what's your experience been in the UK riding as someone so, from Asia? Um, I should disclaim this by saying I haven't been riding very long in the UK because I've only just moved here. I've only just bought Kathy, so it's not been a very long um, background of riding. Um, I have gone to a couple of affiliated shows so far um, in my region and I have ridden in riding schools um, around London. And for the most part, it's okay. There's no active discrimination. There's no active, you know, outward, explicit um, racism or discrimination against me as an Asian rider or um, anything. But I do see, I do feel that there's, there is a, a, a kind of barrier, like an invisible barrier where, I don't know if you, you feel this, but um, in a workplace when you're the only woman at work, you can feel that you're the only woman at work. And it's very similar to mm. in in the horsey place. I can feel that I'm the only person of colour in the yard or in the show. And everywhere I've gone so far riding, um, apart from my riding friend from Singapore, who's, who's now in the UK, who went to ride with me in the riding school, she's um, of Indian origin. Um, apart from her, we're usually the only two per people of colour on the yard. 
Um, and then now where I'm with Kathy, um, everybody is white. And every time I go to a show, everybody is white. Um, so there's, I mean, Hello? Oh, I think. Oh. Okay. Hello. Yeah, Sorry. that's okay. Um, Carry on. The gender on. <laughs> part, I think that, that, that there's definitely no um, no issue there. But I haven't seen uh, coloured riders in person for a very long time, and I mean, I think that's a shame. I think that you know we should definitely be encouraging this sport um, to other people, and even as idols. Like, if I wanted to look up to a rider. It's very hard for me to look up to someone. I mean, all the top, what, the top 10, top 20, most of them are all Caucasian. And so it's 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 not mm. so much as anything very outwardly rather than something more just you feel constantly like an outsider, even though you're not necessarily an outsider. Mm. And what's the what's the impact on you? If you're if you're at a competition and you're the only rider of color, is it does it have an an impact on the on the day for you, or is it just something that you um, reflect? I think my and first notice? time out competing here, I went alone, so I went with uh, my husband, who's definitely not horsey. So I needed some help from um, you know people around, and you can tell who was ready to help and who wasn't. So some ladies, um, a couple of ladies, very graciously lent me some Kenyan boots, which I forgot. So those are the people who I th I feel, you know, they're, they're very open. And then sometimes I, I have gotten stewards who refuse to open the doors for me or people who um, actively messed up my warm-up jumps. So alone, warming yourself up alone is tough. You get off the horse, you fix your yes. jumps, you get back on, and then you have to run around and then jump it and then get back oh off and then, you know, fix your jump up. And so um, I was, I, I don't think, I didn't see any other rider warming themselves up. Um, and I was the only rider there. Go, get off, you know, fix my jump, get back on. And by the time I got back on, someone had moved my jump already. And I did ask politely, I said, hey, you know, I, I made the jump so that I could jump it. And the reply I got wasn't very polite. It was more like, well, too bad. And I don't know, I don't know oh my if gosh. it's just, you know, general impoliteness or, or or if there was something mm. because I I am different and it's that kind of question mm. that I would ask myself like if it was just because you know he's a mm, then, then it's then it's yeah. okay but <laughs> because I'm different I do ask myself that question like was it because of my color and it's the same you know stewards not opening the doors or mm. or people not you know respecting my horse and I or something obviously people have warm-up horror stories but sometimes I do ask my question is is it because I'm different mm, mm. I do uh, I suppose there is always an element with these shows where we you know everyone should be collaborating yeah. to make everyone feel welcome and be respectful of other competitors and as you said with the warm-up horror stories I think everyone's got got something they can offer about being ignored or not being acknowledged but at the end of the day 
all these competitions should be aiming yeah. to make everyone feel welcome regardless of of, of yeah. background or ability and I would say we we do have further to yeah. go with that and even at you know low level shows it's quite remarkable what an atmosphere yeah. can can develop <laughs> you know and that's you know if that if that was a show whether that was a, a show with diverse competitors or you know mainly caucasian competitors it it can be we're here to to unite as riders who love our horses but sometimes the competition yeah. atmosphere can be quite divisive and doesn't necessarily yeah. bring out the best in riders. Mm. In terms of the the racial diversity in equestrianism, I mean, in the UK, it is something that the British Equestrian Federation, they do have a plan. Yeah. You can look, at, look it up online. The racial, the content mm -hmm. around race is quite minimal, but we do, as a sport, um, you know, we do well with, with gender, yeah. generally with LGBT. A lot of our riders yeah. are out and open about LGBT. And we've yeah. obviously got riding for the disabled and disabled people engaging with horses through para, yeah. etc. is really, really encouraged. But I think race is the quietest conversation yeah. at the moment in our sport. Um, what steps would you take to improve racial diversity in equestrianism, equestrianism um, so generally? It started off as a elite sport, um, open to only the rich and the resource, you know, resource rich people. So given history and background, the lower socioeconomic people never had access. And these generally were immigrants or, you know, people of color, because that's the demographic that were usually not at least in this in this area, right in Europe, the demographic which is lower in socioeconomic um, status is the uh, are the people in color, are the immigrants, the foreigners, etc. And um, and I, I think that the one of the mo the most efficient ways of getting our sport out to other uh, open to you know other people of uh, different races would be to encourage um, these people give them access and education about our sport. Um, a lot of people don't go into riding because they don't even know mm -hmm. that they can. Um, and, you know, if they yeah. if they look at it, it's, oh, it's very expensive. Buying a horse is very expensive. And I can attest to that. It's very expensive. But, but there are easier ways <laughs> and cheaper ways to, you know, get access to riding. You can go to a riding school and hopefully pay 30, 40 pounds. And, and the issue is that, you know, 30 and 40 pounds might not be a lot now for us, but it could be a lot. It could be, you know, whether they can get their groceries for a week. Um, and so it's it's more trying to make it in a more accessible sport, whether this is through funding uh, of, you know, some riding schools or, or um, you know, equine therapy. But I think that the most important thing is easy access. Um in London, they, they've started opening up like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, small stables where you can ride, but most of them are catered to the, the uh, for lack of a better word, the richer people. And there's nothing wrong being, you know, there's nothing mm. wrong with being rich, but it just means you have that access that you don't have to bother with, you know, trying harder to get there. So I think for the people who don't mm. have access, we we as people who have access need to, you know, be open and give this access to to others. 
Mm. I agree. And I think obviously the yeah. the main thing is getting people riding. But I suppose there's also that element of engaging yeah. with equestrian sports. Um, you know that I work in professional football and part of my role is encouraging equal access to football and people feeling safe within the, yeah. the, the footprint of a football stadium. But it is interesting, actually, when we look at equestrian events across the country. Um, so badminton horse trials would be an example of very very yeah. big well-known international event and I took my partner yeah. to badminton one year quite recently um, and he reflected this is yeah. a very undiverse audience um, and he said actually I've we've been here for, you know it's <laughs> yeah. spent hours traipsing around the cross-country course and he said you know we've been here hours and I haven't yeah. seen a single person who isn't white what's go you know what's going on and as you said I suppose the horse riding is expensive but actually something that we do in in football and I know people will say that Premier League football's got lots of money but let's just let's just stick to the the, the point in hand is actually we we offer yeah. free or subsidized tickets to get mm -hmm. people through the doors to see if they enjoy the experience and actually why couldn't we do that with some of these competitions to to fund yeah. people to come out into equestrian venues and just see if it's of, of interest to them and whether they might like to ride because like exactly. so you, you don't know what you don't know do you and many of us have been very lucky to have time with these amazing animals understand equestrian sports but actually even if you can't have access to a horse maybe we could be doing yeah. more with our big shows to allow people to come and watch show jumping or watch a bit of dressage or eventing and, even, even, and see um, what it inspires you know with badminton it's it's slightly out of the way for um, a lot of the people of color so I, I i know london very well in the sense that for me mm -hmm. it's the most diverse place in the uk um, given the number of you know ins and outs mm, um, absolutely and we there, i mean there is a big show there's the global champions tour that comes to london every year or should come to london every year i think um and even there, you don't see people of color. And um, that's something that is very surprising mm -hmm. because if you have a show in the North and then there's no pe person of color, I kind of understand just because there's a lower um, density of those people. But, but definitely in sure. London, yeah, the you can't tell different. me that, you know, that's the, that's not the majority. So, um, <laughs> and, and tickets weren't expensive. I think tickets were five to 10 pounds if you wanted just a standing around kind of view but I, I think it's also um publicity and where where we portray the media of our sport um it has to be in places where these people can reach i mean the global champions tour is not going to be in the lexicon of, of normal people if they don't know what the question is so i, I do think mm. you know we need to open mm. our sport more to people who have no idea that horses exist. My husband never touched a horse before he met me. So, and he he didn't oh know goodness, what you know yeah. a hoof was. You mm. know what I mean? It's like it, it's a completely different world, and I think we just yeah. haven't been open enough with this world. It's been a very exclusive and elite world, and we need to change that. We need to make it less exclusive. Just because it's open doesn't mean it's it's you know lower down on the ladder. 
absolutely. I'm going to move us on, Josephine, just because, you know, as I said, this sure. is a, a professional and personal passion of mine. <laughs> and I know we could talk for a long time, but hopefully, you know, thank you for sharing your experiences and reflections. And I'm sure that many of our listeners will will be interested and it may actually be the first time they've considered what the sport looks like and who is able to participate in it and I guess have what's ultimately quite life-changing experiences through through horse ownership and riding so thank you so much for being open to speaking about that and also sharing your international experience so I'm going to do a total u-turn now and I understand that you've recently (laughs) started doing some clicker training so could you could you share with us how how that's going and so, what inspired you um, to I've done clicker training that? since I was in Singapore I did it with my my first lease pony um and then I did it with my first horse in France uh, we did you know silly things like bow backwards and yielding and most of the time I started with um, a lot of groundwork just to make the horse easier to handle because it is very much easier to handle now um but then with Kathy I decided to go on clicker training treats uh, tricks, sorry. So now she can smile, kiss, turn around, bow her head. Um, she does both shoulder yielding and leg yielding and um, body yielding, I guess, um, <laughs> for both sides. And it's, <laughs> it, I, I think it's just an easy way. It's easy to understand there is a science behind it, um, behind positive reinforcement. Um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not advocating for people, you know, to go all the way into, you know, the theory behind it but I think it's it is useful to read about you know positive negative reinforcement and see how it's um it shapes a horse's um idea of training um and I think it's also a good way to keep Cappy's mind occupied while she's just in the box uh now I just spend most of my time giving her scratches mm. and then you know doing the tricks um obviously tricks that will keep her legs happy but yeah and I guess I suppose it having well-mannered horses on the ground it's, it's just essential isn't it I mean it's it's a it's horrendous if you've got a horse that you can't control and as you shared with us if you're going to competition and venue th- venues on your own you've got enough to deal with never mind a horse that won't stand quietly on the end of so, the rain while you're putting I mean, up a jump standing or, still is a very important thing people people often overlook it I feel but standing still is one of the most important skills a horse can learn and you know they learn it very quickly <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just the for me it was the training that required the least number of tools you don't need you know fancy sticks or fancy you know ropes um I do have fancy ropes for Kathy but that's only because I like them <laughs> um you you know you can you don't even need a clicker <laughs> you don't need a physical clicker you can use a tongue click when I started clicker training with Kathy I used the tongue click and then I moved on to a clicker just because it's louder and I started doing some distance training with her as well so with the clicker it was easier um, you don't need a fancy pouch. You can use a pocket for your treats. Uh, you don't need fancy treats, although I use uh, Lucy Mints, which I love. Um, it's just easier. They don't they don't break apart in your pocket, so that's great. Um, and it's a very easy to understand. You know, the horse does something good. You mark the sig- you mark the behavior with a click, and then you treat the horse when you know when it's ready for a treat. Um, sometimes Cappy turns away from the treat. She doesn't normally, you know, sometimes she doesn't want to take the treat. And if she doesn't want it, I give her a scratch on the back. You know, anything that can be seen as a positive thing. So it's not it's not necessarily, you know, you feed your horse to, you know, to death. It's just more like you give it whatever it wants at the time as a, you know, reward for doing whatever you want. 
And I mean, you're well invited to come and try to handle Kathy. I'm pretty sure she's like the easiest horse. To she backs up without you talking. <laughs> yeah, she, oh, she can back. Yeah, if you wave your finger, she backs up. You point to hindquarters, she yields them. You point to her shoulder, she yields that. You point where you want her to go, she walks in that direction. Like she, she's literally the easiest. Oh thing. my god! Like, yeah, you just point oh, and she goes. Mm. That's brilliant. And another question for you, Josephine. Given how you, I know you're doing a lot more at the moment mm -hmm. because of your working, your working situations changed. But I suppose given the the long hours that you have in the working week and mm -hmm. the fact that you, you ride at the weekends generally, do you do anything to help you keep keep fit to ride given that your riding time um, is normally quite limited? Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not the biggest gym buff, so <laughs> definitely not the gym. Um, but I eat very well. Um, I make sure that all my all my meals are very healthy. Um, everything is balanced. I eat um, long, you know, long digestion carbs. I eat, or if anything, I eat very low carb. Um, and I make sure each meal has every macronutrient in um, in moderation, but present. Um, I also believe in yoga and stretching. I think cardio you can get by running up the stairs, and I run or I run everywhere. Um, but stretching is so important, especially especially when you've taken a break for seven years and you come back and you realize you you know pulled something in your hip um, when you first get on. Uh -huh. So I definitely recommend eating very well and yoga. Yoga. Yeah, it's good. Um, and what would be your approach to to horse um, riding in three words? I think it would be you listen. So you listen to your horse, you listen to your coach, you listen to what other people see on the ground, but you also listen to yourself and what your horse is telling you and what you can feel. Um, understand where you try to understand where the horse is coming from, where your coach is coming from. I, I do believe that, you know, riding is a team sport in the sense that it comes from your horse, your coach, your audience and yourself. And you react. Um, reaction is very important um it can help or you know either help or kill your riding dreams by either you react in the wrong way or you don't react so i think um how you react is one of the most important things in riding that's a beautiful summary thank you and the final question for today um is what's your top tip for uh, riding and working full time tips. it would be one, have a budget. Um, Go for it. Budget would be for how much you spend on your horse, how much you spend on yourself. And then it helps you, I think, understand how many, you know, extras you can put in into the at the end of the month. Um, that's probably just like riding in general, I guess, owning a horse. And the second thing would be have a calendar. Um, I have a diary and a calendar for every minute of my day. Um, you know, for this podcast, it was like 10.30 to X time. And then I have lunch. And then once I have lunch, I go to work. And and yes, I do go to work on the weekend sometimes. But, um, but yeah, definitely have a calendar, plan out every minute of your day because every minute is important. You know, you lose two minutes here and two minutes accumulates to an hour and it accumulates to a day. So definitely time management, basically.
That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Josephine. It's been a fascinating and really um, varied conversation today. So all the best for you and Cappy in the future. And we look forward to Thank seeing you very much your for having me. road to recovery um, and your future and, riding. Yeah, fingers crossed uh, all goes well. Thank you, Ali. It was absolutely fascinating to speak to Josephine today. And in fact, I could have carried on talking to her for hours. What was really, really apparent was the level of commitment that she has to horse ownership. The image that she painted from going from Canary Wharf to Hampshire at the weekends, a very demanding job to that time for rest and relaxation with Cappy. It was just great to hear someone making riding work for them within the parameters of a really demanding job. It was also so interesting to hear about her experience of learning to ride in Singapore. Um, not only that, but the changes that she noticed, seeing equestrianism going from a sport that was predominantly for expats um, to a sport that the local community started to engage with, but also those those elements that she brought in about where horses get purchased from, how horses retire, the sort of horses that you're likely to come across in a Singaporean riding stables. That was just so great to hear and I could be endlessly curious hearing about how people um, manage and compete their horses all around the world. I was really grateful to have the conversation with Josephine about how she felt competing in the UK as a person of colour and her perception of that in, invisible barrier. Um, it was also really, really important where she emphasised about role models and visibility for people in our sport, um, describing herself as feeling as a bit of an outsider. I guess the reflection um, on that discussion around competitions is that really, you know, let's all just consider our behaviour, um, whether that's at a show with diverse competitors or not. Um, and I know competitions can be stressful and horses certainly don't help in some situations. But really, let's let's just take some time to ensure that we're making other competitors feel welcome um, and that we're supporting each other um, while we're competing, because ultimately we all love horses. We all love equestrianism and we should do our best to feel as united um, as possible in that account. It was also really, really positive to have a conversation with a fellow equestrian about racial diversity and the steps that Josephine felt that we could start to take to improve access to the sport, whether that's through riding directly, um, perhaps volunteering, having local riding lessons or accessing those big equestrian events and enjoying equestrianism as a spectator, which is an equally um, valid way to enjoy horses. Um, really really interesting i think there's further to go with this conversation um, in this country and i think globally with levels of engagement and racial diversity with equestrianism but i was really glad to get that conversation kicked off today so thank you josephine for taking the time um, to share that and to also share your your personal experiences of, of competing i really wish josephine and cappy all the best i know cappy's injured at the moment um, and josephine's enjoying spending time doing clicker training with her um, but i'm absolutely hoping that we will see them on the show jumping circuit soon and i can't wait to see um, all of josephine's pictures of her enjoying cappy um, in their element
You have been listening to 9 to 5 Rider, the podcast for amateur equestrians. We really hope that you enjoyed the podcast today. And if you found it useful, do share it, rate or recommend the podcast on Facebook or iTunes. We'd also love to see what you and your horses have been up to. You can follow us on Instagram at 9to5rider and tag us in anything you're doing. You can also use the hashtag 9to5rider. Until the episode on Friday, enjoy your week with your horses and we look forward to you listening again then.